What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Back to this one's a doozy. I'm Kevin. And I'm Haley. And we talk about stories of mystery, true crime, and folklore, the unusual, unsettling, and oftentimes unsavory goings on of our world today, yesterday, and long ago. Bada bing. That's right. Bada boom. I wonder how that sounds in like more than regular speed. Because I sure. listen to my podcasts on like one and a half speed usually, sometimes yeah. double. Yeah. And <laughs> you should test I, it out sometime. I bet it sounds, <laughs> I bet it rips. I feel like sometimes I say it really fast and sometimes I say it regular speed. I'm curious what the discrepancy is. Yeah. People who listen to it on one and a half time have no idea what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. It just kind of flies by. <laughs> it's a mystery. That's a mystery. once again, we're feeding the mystery side of the podcast. That's right. Staying well, true. Uh, first off, might we say, if you're listening on release day, Happy Thanksgiving. Again. Again. Twice. That's in right. the same this day. This is a, a, a surprise, a bonus on the same day that we're not really calling it a bonus episode. It's just another episode. See, here's the thing. Yeah. I would call any extra episode a bonus. You mm. would not. Correct. You feel like if something is considered a bonus episode, then it needs to be like a special thing, like yeah. spooky season bonus. Yes, exactly. I feel like any extra episode that's not on a Thursday, just a singular Thursday episode is a bonus episode. We have the only time we've ever fought in our entire marriage yes. has been over yes. if this is technically a bonus episode or if it's just an extra special episode, which in layman's terms is a bonus episode or a surprise episode. I need everybody to weigh in on this because I feel very strongly. I am in the camp that if it's extra beyond the norm, then it's a bonus. And I feel similar, but different. You know that I'm right. That's the only reason why you say it that way, but we don't get the special spooky bonus intro track. And we it's true. Do get a feel good fact. So I it's guess true. it evens out. It's, it's basically a regular episode, but it's a special bonus Thanksgiving episode because it's Thanksgiving. We know you, we know that you are commuting to different places around the country, potentially the world, mm. depending on where you're coming from and going to. And if you celebrate Thanksgiving in the, in the States and uh, here we are. Yeah. We We're, know people are also cleaning, they're cooking, mm-hmm. they're driving around. So looking why, at lights. So why not let you have one more episode? Yeah. Just and this is probably going to be a long one. I'm going to, I'm going to take a stab in the dark here and say, this is going to be a long one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, since we know that, why don't we go ahead and move right along to our first question? Mm-hmm. The all important, what are you drinking? Because of the nature of today's story, I decided to go for alcohol. So okay. I chose a Dr. Pepper with amaretto. Ooh. And ice. Amaretto. And yeah. 
That's delicious. So it's not an amaretto sour. No. Which is your favorite. That's my favorite favorite, but this is like in a pinch. It's right there. It's right there. So good. That's Highly great. recommend. 10 out of 10 stars. Yum. What about you? I am having a Coke and Jägermeister, which I have never in with, my life. With, I added something special to with it. With vanilla? Yes. Okay. I can <laughs> taste it with something, but I couldn't tell. Uh, and I've never in my life had Jägermeister until like two days ago. Your grandma made you take some home. <laughs> yes, because I wasn't feeling quite uh, well, 100% well. And mm-hmm. she said that this is full of herbs and stuff and it'll make you feel better. And well, I said, grandma says. Okay, okay, grandma, fine. So Sure, grandma, have some Jaeger. I, she gave me, <laughs> the recommendation is one tablespoon like a day or one tablespoon at mealtime or whatever. She gave me two plus tablespoons at, in the moment, which was basically a full shot of Jägermeister. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, she sent me home with a, a jar. giant jar. <laughs> <laughs> so I think she was just trying to get rid of that it. That felt pretty shady. Like it felt like we were doing something shady and bringing home <laughs> a mysterious liquid in uh-huh. a jar. Uh-huh. But we made it home. It was just Jaeger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'll say uh, mixed together that vanilla Jaeger and... Coca-Cola, mm-hmm. I mean, goes great together. Mm-hmm. Way better than by itself, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I know. Big That's surprise. crazy. That's nuts. Big surprise. I so, yeah. not, who'd have thunk? Uh, I, not me. Not I me. literally had no, <laughs> nothing to base it off of until just now. Mm, love it. Yeah. Well, why don't you go ahead and share with us? You've got a feel-good fact for us today. I sure do. Hit us with it. All right. So today's feel-good fact Charlie Chaplin entered a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest and lost. (laughs) (laughs) He entered the contest in 1975, likely believing that he would win and everyone there would have a great laugh and would be like super excited to see him. But he came in third place. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. I wonder if he looked too realistic. Like, you know, he doesn't, you don't, you know, when you like meet somebody who you only see on TV or movies or on a stage at concerts, whatever, on videos mm-hmm. on YouTube, and then you see them in person, they don't look quite quite the same. It was partially that, but I read that people were confused because since most of his, you know, movies and things that they would recognize were in black and white, he actually has blue eyes. And oh. so they would see the blue <laughs> eyes and just write this guy yeah. off as a like cool costume and all, but like that's you, you forgot the the brown eye contact lenses. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> Right. Right. So I love That's that. Funny. That feels very on brand for Charlie. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, my love. Yes. <laughs> you ready to take us there into our story for today? <sighs> I suppose so. This is one of those rare ones where you've tipped me off a little bit ahead of time, but I don't know really any of the actual story. I just know this one's going to be uh, uh, quite crazy. Very rough. Yeah. This one is bad. All right. <laughs> okay. Why don't you take us there now that you've set us up with that incredible feel-good fact? Yes. I'm going to ruin it now. That's so good. for today's episode, I'm covering a topic that I'm kind of surprised took me so long to get to, a serial killer. We've done more than 30 episodes, and this is my first crack at telling a serial killer story. Hmm. I've got to be honest and say that I have like an apprehension about talking about certain figures in the true crime world. Mm-hmm. Like many stories of high profile serial killers have been told so many times. And even when they're remarkably well done, I don't always love the way that they're told and the way that they're kind of like a cultural phenomenon in like a weird, 
there's like a positive spin that some people put on the behaviors and stuff like that, that I struggle with. Mm -hmm. So I've avoided it up until now. Right. So I don't plan on doing this frequently, but I thought that it was time that we get to it. And this person's been recommended a few times. So today I'm going to tell you all about Ed Kemper, AKA the co-ed killer. Hmm. Okay. Okay, since this is a story of a serial killer, implying that there's obviously multiple victims, Mm -hmm. and in this case, it involves multiple gruesome deaths, here's a blanket content warning. There will be discussions surrounding childhood neglect and abuse, graphic descriptions of crime, super crass language in interviews of Ed describing his crimes and his motives that I'll reference, and some very disturbing sexual themes. Mm. I still plan on offering a quick content warning before the more distressing parts, But I wanted to start out with a blanket one since this one really is horrifyingly bad Mm. from beginning to end. So, and I I would also say it's probably the worst one we've done so far. Mm. So here we go. Um, Edmund Emo Kemper III was born on December 18th, 1948 at St. Joseph Hospital in Burbank, California to his parents, Edmund Emo Kemper II and his wife, Clarnell. Edmund also had a sister who was six years older than him, named Susan, and a younger sister named Aylin, who was two years younger. So the Kemper home was dysfunctional, to say the least. Mm. In interviews, Edmund and his younger sister both painted a pretty vivid picture of how hard it was growing up in their home. So Ed's father, who went by the nickname E.E., was a six-foot-eight electrician. Oh, my gosh. He was a World War II vet who had seen some serious battle and had, according to Ed— even taken part in various suicide missions during his time in the service. When Ed was four years old, E.E. actually went and worked on an atomic bomb testing program somewhere in the Pacific Ocean where he would remain for two years. When he returned, he went to work as an electrician. (laughs) It was this particular career move that seemed to have had a huge impact on how E.E.'s wife viewed him. She viewed his failed attempts at getting his degree and then taking a job that she really didn't respect as him being weak And like his work being sort of meaningless and menial. She would pick fights with him and would use every opportunity she could to degrade him, oftentimes in front of the kids. E.E. said of his then wife, Clarnell, that suicide missions and atomic bomb testing missions were nothing compared to living with her. Mm. He said she, quote, affected me as a grown man more than 396 days of fighting on the front did. I became confused and was not certain of anything for quite some time. End quote. That's kind of sad. So as parents, when the kids were very little, the burly, boisterous adults could be super fun from time to time. With E.E. standing at 6'8 and Clarnell standing at 6 foot, their personalities surely matched their size. (laughs) When it was great, it was a loud, booming time. Yeah. But when it was bad, it was really bad. Oh, man. So we have to go into this part of the story remembering that this is the 1950s. As far as Mm. the Kempers' parenting styles, they were both extremely withholding of affection and were pretty harsh disciplinarians. They regularly rejected their children and were extremely emotionally unavailable. Mm. While that wasn't completely unusual in the 50s, those things paired with the extremely unhealthy marriage dynamic was a recipe for disaster. Oh, man. Okay. They would have explosive fights screaming at each other, and the kids would see it. Oh, my gosh. So when Ed was nine, his dad left again, but this time it was because the dad wanted a separation from Clarnell. So I'll talk more about that time of Ed's life in a minute, but let's talk about Ed as a small child. So from a very young age, Ed took after his parents in a few ways, most obviously in the height department. 
He was described as an extremely large toddler who was curious and always getting into things. <laughs> he had a certain special kinship with his younger sister in the earlier years of their childhood, and he described her as almost like his little sidekick. Which sounds sweet, right? It is sweet, yeah. It would not remain sweet. Mm. Ed would encourage some very strange games with his sisters. He would cut the heads and hands off of his sister's dolls and would excitedly set up a game that he called Gas Chamber, where he would pretend he was being executed via gas chamber with his little baby sister pulling the imaginary lever. They had another version of this game called the Electric Chair, which is not hard to fill in the blanks on what the rules were for that game. Wow. Yeah. So not typical. Like, kids do weird things. We know that kids do weird things. We have kids. We've seen it. You know, they were playing sea monsters today, and one was requiring the other one to eat her. (laughs) You must take a bite. Like, (laughs) So, I mean, we've seen weird things, but there's something, I mean, maybe it's only as weird as it feels. Sure. Because of what he later goes on to do. But I just feel like those aren't normal childhood games. Correct. Yeah, it's <laughs> so. uh, it's it's like it's taken the dark history of uh, what's that game that you play as a kid when you're uh, Ring Around the Rosie. Oh, yeah. And you're doing that. And it's really about isn't that like about the Holocaust or something like really, really sad. Or no, it's Hiroshima about a, or something like it's that. It's about a disease. Oh, the Black Death. Yeah, I think it's about the Black Death. Yeah, that's right. And it's like taking one of those, but like. <laughs> A few steps further where it's like more direct. (laughs) Yeah. Like a little on the nose Uh, about it. Yeah. Yeah. So another time his sisters were teasing him about him having a crush on his teacher. And when they asked if he was going to kiss her, he said, quote, if I kiss her, I would have to kill her first. End quote. Oh. Yeah. I don't have an exact age on that quote, but he was young. Yeah. So there was also an extremely upsetting dynamic that would play out between the kids through Ed's childhood. One of the worst examples of this is that one of them threw him into the pool when he was super little, like four or five years old. Mm -hmm. And he had to struggle in order to get out, almost drowning in the process. One of them also, I guess, jokingly pushed him in front of an oncoming train that would barely miss hitting him. What? It's tough to know how many of the stories involving his sisters are fully accurate, but there's trouble, you know, there, there's the trouble of there being variations in the different reports and the way that Ed would tell stories. Sure. Ed will tell a story in vivid detail in one way and then later tell it completely differently with such different details. Hmm. So it's hard to know how many of these things are fully accurate. Sure. Okay. So, but that's what he said. Yeah. Wow. That's wild. Okay. Yeah, he was definitely very, very obsessed with his dad's war stories and the many different pieces of war memorabilia in his home, from guns to bayonets and machetes and so on. He was very interested in them. Yeah. So he learned how to shoot a gun at summer camp as a child, and he also went on to become a Boy Scout, which none of these things on their own are indicators, nor are they to blame for what Ed would later go on to do, but they did afford him some skills that he would use in his later crimes, Mm. such as how to properly use a knife and the correct way to hide something that you've buried in the woods by covering them with dry leaves instead of wet ones and that sort of stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So like learning nature survival tactics, unfortunately came in handy for him when he was discarding of remains. So- It's clear from every source that I used for this episode that Ed was always very fascinated with death and the act of murder. And it would escalate from Ed just saying weird things and playing weird games to Ed killing animals and continuing to mutilate dolls and his sister's toys and things like that. Yeah. And 
small trigger warning, I'm going to mention suicide. When Ed was young, he attempted suicide. He would go to church and he would pray out loud for everyone in the world besides him to be killed when he was teeny tiny. So, yeah, out loud, like in front of everyone, like I want everyone in the world to be dead. Amen. Besides me. Wow. Yeah. Which is so weird hearing from a little kid. Yeah. You know. There's a lot of things there that makes that weird. Yeah. Yes. All right. So I don't want to talk about this next part at all, but we have to talk a little bit about the animal deaths. Mm, Content warning. This next bit has some super graphic descriptions of extreme violence against animals. So definitely skip ahead a minute or two if you don't want to hear that. Mm. So Ed killed many cats. He killed his first cat by burying it alive in the yard. He returned later when it was obviously dead. Mm. He then dug up the cat brought it into his home, and decapitated it. Oh, gosh. He put the cat's head on a spike that he kept in his room, which he would then pray over. He would pray over the... what? Yeah. There were rumors in his neighborhood that he'd killed a neighborhood dog, which definitely didn't do him any favors in the realm of making friends. Right. One day, while his childhood cat was asleep in a chair, Ed was casually sharpening knives and a machete. Mm. That's when he got bothered by the cat. It wasn't doing anything in that moment, but Ed hated it. He hated it because he thought it was spoiled and arrogant. But worse, in his opinion, was that the cat preferred to be around his sisters more than it wanted to be around him. So that theme of sort of like feeling rejection in some form is continuing on for Ed, as you can clearly see here. Oh, geez. So instead of just leaving it alone and moving on with his life, Ed decided to grab the cat and slice off a portion of its skull. As the poor thing struggled, he stabbed it repeatedly all over its poor little body until it finally died. He was scared that someone would find the remains if he tried to hide it outside, so he dismembered it and hid some of its remains in his closet. These were behaviors that his mother was well aware of, just as a side note. She ended up finding the bones of the cat in the closet and was just like, get this out of here. That's gross. Jeez. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about Ed's parents and what life was like for him for the remainder of his childhood. Hold on. Let's not yet because I'm you're like. You're sitting here on I'm the animal deaths. I'm dumbfounded with that whole story. Well, I mean, everybody knows at this point the way that conversations happen around these sorts of things in society today. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows that violence against animals is an indicator of potential disorders and right. potential mental illnesses and things that need Attention, medical attention. And I know that things were not the same in the 1950s, not making an excuse, but I don't get how you would see your kid doing that. And not be concerned. Not at least be worried. Like a little bit or like grossed out to the point. I would heave. We would go to the doctor right now. Like. Right. The the level of gruesomeness is beyond just like, well, you I wonder would, what would happen if I hit this cat with a rock, which is terrible enough. Right. But like how gruesome the whole thing was. That's, see, that's that's the the distinction to me is I, I never participated in this, but I had plenty of friends who, for whatever reason, felt like shooting airsoft guns at neighborhood cats was Aww. a fun thing to do. And it was one of those like, I guess that sounds like it's not really hurting anything for real, but it's like kind of weird. And I just never really understood it, but didn't think much of it. Anything beyond that was like troublesome. And no one ever told me that that was troublesome. That was me as a, as an 11 year old. Right. So 
I'm just kind of like in that same vein, hearing this story just makes me kind of like, like my eyes are popping on my head, just thinking like, like as you're talking about it, like Uh that's, that's so crazy. And at the very least to not get some kind of serious, like you will never do that to an animal again. Right. Like stern talking to, and, uh, we know that spankings in the 1950s were a thing. So like, it's just crazy to me to think there was, especially because you said that his parents were such such strict uh, disciplinarians. Yeah, I'll but- get more into that dynamic shortly. But yeah, I it is very surprising that he continued to do it. There was this thing, and and you see it if you ever watch any of his interviews. You see it where as he's describing some of the more despicable behavior, he knows it's almost as if he either knows that it's wrong or he knows that he should know Mm, that it's wrong, if that makes sense. So he is like, I understand that this animal did nothing to deserve me to kill it, but I couldn't not. And then I got curious what would happen if I did this and what would happen if I did that. And you can see this like little thread kind of woven through how he tells a lot of stories where he'll, he'll say something that's so mind blowingly disgusting and gruesome about an act that he did. Mm. And it's, it's very casual in how he delivers it. And then there's also the same vein of like, yeah, I knew it was messed up. And so I felt ashamed. And so I hid it. And then the problem kept festering. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's, that's what he would say. Yeah. But it's, it's hard to know if that's genuine because he knows mm-hmm. what he's supposed to say. Right. Which oh. we'll also get more into that. So okay. now let's talk a little bit more about yeah. Ed's parents and yeah. what life yeah. was like for him for the remainder of his childhood. So when E.E. returned home in 1958 to sort of rekindle the family, he learned that while he was gone, Clarnell had employed a new disturbing parenting tactic with Ed. She had apparently made him sleep in the cold basement for more than eight months. What? This wasn't like a cool basement setup with like a TV and a couch and some video games and a toy box and like fun stuff like that. It was a dingy, dark area that was only accessible if you moved the kitchen table off of the board that served as almost like a trap door leading to the stairs that go down to the basement. Oh. So he would be like trapped down there. Yeah. He was scared and lonely, but this is what his mother had done. She'd also made him work. She'd send him out with mountains of newspapers and told him not to come home until he delivered all of them. It was around that time that Clarnell also developed a drinking problem. And this, Mm. I mean, he was young here. He was like eight years old. He was little. Um, She seemed to target Ed and like go out of her way to mistreat him. And Ed would later say that his mother was a real man hater. Mm. She would like blame him for the dad leaving and any of her romantic struggles. She would blame him. Okay. So yeah, it's really strange. So Clarnell was without a doubt, extremely abusive, specifically towards Ed. On top of everything I've already laid out about her treatment towards him, she would also verbally taunt him regularly. Hmm. She would call him weak, and she worried about his troubles relating to kids his own age, which that's normal. Sure. But she would not communicate that in a way that's going to, like, encourage your kid to go make friends. Right. And she wasn't, like, reaching out to his school and saying, hey, would you watch this with him? Would you encourage, you know, sharing and fair play and, like, inclusion and that kind of stuff? It was just, like... You are really weird because you don't have any friends. Oh, man. Which is sad. Basically bullying. Yeah. Being bullied by his mom. Yes. She thought that he needed to stand up for himself in social situations. She also intentionally withheld affection because she was worried that if she showed him too much motherly love, that he would end up becoming gay. 
Oh, what? she was very concerned about that. Oh, jeez. Which is like, are you? Yeah, that's, really. There so it is. So you don't love your kid. That's the. You don't want to show love to your kid in case he becomes gay. Oh my. That's gosh. like such a. I cannot. It's so backwards. Yeah, that's a very weird thing. She would also poke fun at his size a lot. As a young teenager, he'd already soared up and over the six foot mark. She'd remind him over and over again that no woman would ever want him, that they would always consider him a towering, undateable weirdo. She also blamed him not only for her divorce from E.E., but also for future divorces and any sort of disrepair in one of her many romantic relationships. Hmm. Ed has described his feeling towards his mother as truly wanting to love her, but hating her because he was afraid of her and because they just couldn't get close to each other. So he really resented her for that. Wow. So when E.E. E. and Clarnell officially got divorced in 1961, Clarnell relocated herself and the kids to Helena, Montana. Okay. During this time, E.E. E. had relocated to Southern California, where he got married and had another child, a son who I believe is named David. Some sources say that David was a nickname because this person didn't want their actual identity out in the public, but sure. I'm not totally sure if that's true. Sure. So anyways, that would make sense to me, honestly. Yeah, I, I would want to be as far removed from that as possible Yeah, if I could be. So after a long, grueling summer with Clarnell in Montana, Ed took off to Southern California to live with his dad and go to school there. Hmm. However, after a pretty short time, this would come to an end. There were a lot of factors at play in this part of Ed's life, but to keep it simple— E.E. basically had this whole new life. Mm -hmm. It was like a do-over marriage. And there were also plenty of discomforts in the relationship between the second Mrs. Kemper and Ed. So after only a week in school, he was sent back to Montana. Oh. It's sad. It's so it's sad. like there Just is a theme. around. There's a lot of rejection. Yeah. You can see it. Yeah. Um, he would stay for a short while before stealing his mom's car and running away to live with his dad again, who this time allowed Ed to stay a little bit longer. Sometime around Christmas of that year, Ed and his dad, his stepmom, and his brother went to go visit his paternal grandparents, Edmund Emo Kemper Sr. and Maud Kemper, on their farm in North Fork, California, at the bottom of the Sierra Mountain Range. Hmm. Much to Ed's dismay, his dad ended up leaving him there after the Christmas holiday had passed. Clarnell oh. was, yeah, like to stay. Oh. So Clarnell was equally as unhappy with E.E. E. about this arrangement. She randomly called him in the middle of the night and told him that he was taking a real chance by dumping Ed with his grandparents and that she wouldn't be surprised if one day they'd wake up to the news that Ed had killed them. Oh, my gosh. So that's not good. <sighs> she. The thing is, she's like so aware. I know. And yet abusive. I know. Like, okay. Yeah, keep I just going. wish. I just wish. There would have been like one element, yeah, two small elements in this first part of Ed's life that could have been different because mm -hmm. I don't think it would have ended up the same. Yeah. Like, I think that deep down, this woman did love her kids. I think she had a lot of problems. She had a lot of problems. Yeah. And she obviously was not seeking any help for them for herself. And then when she would see new problems arise, there wasn't like a pattern of, we go and we get these things fixed and handled and treated and whatever. Mm -hmm. It was just, I'm just going to shame you for these things that are completely right now, not within your capacity to be able to know what to do with. I'm going to just shame you for it. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I'm not making excuses for anybody's behavior here, but I am like logically trying to reason out what her thought process could be when it's very clear that she is aware that something yeah. is very, very not right. Exactly. 
Yeah. So, all right. So Edmund Sr. was a 72-year-old retired highway worker for the state of California at the time that Ed was dropped off with him. Ed found his grandpa to be pretty boring and senile. (laughs) His wife, Maude, was a 66-year-old woman who, at this point of the story, was a children's author and artist. (laughs) So by all accounts, Maude was a tough old gal, and in many ways, she reminded Ed of his mother. Ed was becoming pretty withdrawn and sulky, and this would not do in Maude's house. She would get on him when he would become down in the dumps and would accuse him of pretending to be sad just to make her feel bad for him and that sort of thing. But Ed did love the farm dog and felt like the dog was his only friend. But his grandma was also mean to the dog. So, oh, geez. Yeah. At least according to Ed. So Ed would later describe Maude as not only reminding him of his mother, but he also, quote, thought she had more balls than any man and was constantly emasculating me and my grandfather to prove it. I couldn't please her. It was like being in jail. I became a walking time bomb and I finally blew. End quote. Wow. Mm hmm. So I'll explain more about that ominous last part in a second. Okay. So in an attempt to cheer Ed up and with the hopes of like making a man out of his grandson, Edmund Sr. bought him a gun and offered him money if he would shoot rabbits and bring them home. But he was told not to shoot any birds. Mm. Ed, of course, shot all the birds to the point that birds stopped coming near the property altogether. (laughs) He shot a lot of birds. Wow. Yes. So Ed was 15 at this time and he stood at six feet, four inches tall. He's a that big, a, that a big, big kid. Dude. Yeah. yeah. His grandparents enrolled him in high school in a nearby town. And crazy enough, he did a great job at school at this time. He didn't get in any trouble and maintained pretty average grades. Huh. Teachers would describe him as quiet and cooperative. It seemed like although there was some tension between Ed and his grandparents, he really was doing okay. When the school year ended, he went back to Montana. After two short weeks, he returned to his grandparents' home, however, His grandparents noticed that his sullen nature was, like, even more apparent when he Mm, came back. Like, he was sulkier than ever. So, it was around this time that he began having fantasies about violence and murder. Oh, my god! Like, he would fantasize about shooting and killing his grandma. He would later say that even though he did have several opportunities to do so, that he chose not to because he didn't want his grandpa to catch him. So, we just feel like it's good to unpack this grandparent dynamic for a second. Yeah. You can tell he wants to like his grandpa. Yes. And you can tell that he's almost like hypercritical of any woman. It seems yes. like. And it's like almost everybody is like a substitute for his mom. Yeah. And anything that they do or say, he's going to like project his feelings about his mom on that woman. Mm-hmm. And he's going to view them accordingly. There's a lot of resentment there. Mm-hmm. So that's something that. Like he was more more concerned about not upsetting his grandpa by killing his wife than he was about killing his grandma. Right. Like right. very strange. That is it is strange. And it's also like uh I do wonder, and maybe you'll be able to, to flesh this out more as the story goes on. Mm-hmm. I do wonder if there's a dynamic of women in his life, you know, like mm-hmm. it's his dad's mom and his dad married a woman that maybe was similar to his own mom. Yeah. In a lot of ways. That's true. Like, that is true. That's, I'm wondering if that's how, if that's, if, if, if it's part of it, like clearly he's, uh, uh, Ed has, has issues with women in mm-hmm. his life. Yeah. But I also wonder if it's, it's not just his mom, women. if it's the, yeah, these specific women all compounded in mm-hmm. a way, but I'm sure yeah. that 
more, there's more to that to come. I would yeah, imagine. I'm sure. Yeah. So on August 27th, 1964, Ed and Maude were sitting at the table. Maude was working on her children's book. And when she looked over at Ed, she'd noticed that he'd sort of like, he had this distant look in his eyes. This was something that Ed did somewhat regularly and it bothered Maude when he did it. So she would tell him to like snap out of it, knock it off, yeah. quit spacing out. So with seemingly no actual trigger, Ed stood up from the table. He grabbed the twenty-two rifle that his grandpa had given him and began to walk towards the door, telling his grandma he was going to go rabbit hunting. Hmm. When he got outside, he stopped on the front porch. He turned around, pointed his gun at the back of his grandma's head through the screen door and pulled the trigger. He then shot her two more times in the back to make sure that she was dead. Oh my <sighs> gosh. Yes. He wrapped her head in a towel to contain the bleeding and dragged her body to her bedroom. Shortly after, his grandpa had arrived back at home from his weekly grocery store run. So Ed waited until his grandpa got out of the car and had his back turned to him. So grandpa was getting the groceries he just bought out of the trunk, and that's when Ed also shot him in the back of the head. He moved his grandpa's body to the garage and thought about what he should do next. Should he run? Should he try and hide their bodies and, like, resume life as normal he wasn't sure so he called his mom and told her quote grandma's dead and so is grandpa end quote he initially told her it was an accident and it didn't take much for clarnell to like sniff out that that was a lie yeah so he told her the truth she told him to call the police and so he did when investigators brought ed in for questioning at one point they just like straight up asked him why did you do this to which ed responded with quote i just wondered how it would feel to shoot grandma End quote. Oh, what? He went on to say that he only killed his grandpa to spare him from having a heart attack at the sight of his dead wife. Oh, that's so nice of him. Yeah. What a, what a hero. Wow. Oh. After undergoing some psychological testing, it was originally believed by some specialists that Ed had paranoid schizophrenia, but there was a ton of dispute between different professionals about this. Hmm. Many believed he was trying to aim for an insanity plea. But at the time of his trial, he was judged as being at the very least criminally insane, not mm -hmm. necessarily medically insane. And so on December 6, 1964, less than two weeks before his 16th birthday, Ed would begin his time at Atascadero State Hospital as a criminally insane juvenile. Mm. This was a maximum security facility, but unlike typical maximum security prisons, it wasn't as like scary of a place, and many people across the country were kind of watching this specific institution, mm. hoping that their methodology would be successful in treating people who were sentenced there, because it was sort of a cross between a medical hospital and a prison. Oh, sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's a little bit of a... Like a hybrid. Yeah, it's a hybrid, and it's also kind of um, a prototypical method. They're kind of taking the first steps towards this, and mm -hmm. everybody else is kind of like, we'll see. You yeah, know. that's that's how it seemed to me. So Ed's time at Atascadero was just as formative as his childhood was. Shortly after arriving, Ed underwent a ton of psychological analysis and testing. These tests were meant to help professionals to diagnose and treat Ed, which in a lot of ways, the tests did do that. They were able to determine that Ed was very intelligent hmm. and that he had an IQ of 145. Oh, my gosh. Yep. Which... To put that into perspective, the average person has an IQ of between 85 and 115, according to Healthline. Yeah. So he so, was far yes. above I think average. 150 is considered like genius level. So he's like pushing that bound 
right he's there. up there. Yeah, he's up there. So huh. Dr. William Schranberger was the director of the psychology lab at the time of Ed's stay at Atascadero, and he worked with Ed almost every single day during his time there. There were other psychologists and psychiatrists that worked with him that had all taken a sort of special interest in Ed for a few reasons. For one, they really wanted to figure out what mental health issues he may have been struggling with so that they could you know, treat him with the goal of a full like rehabilitation in mind. Yeah. And then two, in almost every way, Ed was a model inmate. He was cooperative and friendly, and he certainly used the regular medical testing to his advantage. After some time, he had sort of harnessed his charm and intellect in order to be able to cheat the system and kind of like cheat at the tests. Yeah. So he learned how to decide what to say and what not to say in order to get whatever result he was looking for. Oh, so Ed was like a super master manipulator. And I feel like this was like regular daily practice at that skill. Yeah. Evil genius for sure. Ed said about this time, quote, I broke my butt. I was the, (laughs) I was the dynamic young man. And they began to say, maybe we can let him out sooner than we had thought. End quote. So they would say things like that with an earshot of him. And he's like, okay, now I know that if I do this, then they think I'm improving. Yeah. Wow. Yes. So he knew exactly what he was doing here. He had charmed his way into the good graces of many staff members at the facility, even to the point that even though he'd been treated in the categories of both being a psychopath and a sociopath, he was given the opportunity to work as a crew leader in administering tests to other inmates. Mm. Isn't that wild? I'm very surprised by that. Very surprised by that. He would sit and listen to all of their crimes and their wild, violent fantasies, and he would keep his nose to the ground as he filed those ideas, particularly the ideas that he'd gotten from violent sexual offenders. He'd tuck those away for a rainy day. Ooh, that is, wow, that is not not a good, not a good look for this institution. Yeah. So I am sitting here, I, I am going through this, a lot of how I'm phrasing things is a very careful rewording of stuff that Ed himself has said in one of his many, many interviews. Listening to him kind of describe the sorts of things, like he would give examples. Oh, gosh. Wow. It's It was really rough. So Ed only stayed at a Tascadero for five short years until 1969. On his 21st birthday, December 18th, 1969, Ed was released on parole and his probation psychologist said of him, quote, If I were to see this patient without having any history, I would think that we're dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and who was free of any psychiatric illnesses, end quote. Wow. So he did a great job at fooling people. Right. It almost makes you wonder, like, like, was he actually rehabilitated and then just like slipped back into it? It almost feels like a double life. Yeah. Like he was always kind of like, like walking in two different pairs of shoes at the same time. Yeah. That's kind of how a lot of this part, at least this part of his life, Mm. that's how it seemed. So he would kind of explain it as though he was faking it, but there's, I'm like the optimist in me, which is a very small part of me (laughs) is like, there's, there's no way that he was making no actual progress and he was only fooling people. Right. But at the same time, not being a medical professional or having any, you know, field of study in 
psychology, psychiatry, all that kind of stuff. It is very hard for me to wrap my mind around all of that being an act. Yeah. But like, that's what he said. Yeah, if that's what he actually did. And yeah. the evidence is there to support that. Mm. So when Ed re-entered society, not only was the world very different, but he felt completely detached from it. He called himself an old fogey when he came out because he was so out of the loop on just about everything going on in the outside world. Huh. So one extremely important detail of Ed's release was that despite every professional at Atascadero telling him to completely cut off relational ties with his mother, he was actually released into her care in Santa Cruz, California, which oh. sounds like the worst idea ever. Yeah. Ooh. So this was another one of the like huge factors yeah. in this whole story, in my opinion. So Clarnell had relocated back to Santa Cruz, where she had worked as an administrative assistant at the University of California at Santa Cruz. Hmm. As you can imagine, the fighting between Ed and Clarnell was just as bad as ever. But interestingly, Clarnell was drinking far less. It seems as though she really loved her job and really loved the students, particularly the young women. She felt like a sort of pride in them. Hmm. She also wasted no time in telling Ed that he'd never be loved by a woman. So that's also Oof. not great. So at this time, Ed tried to sort of reintroduce himself into the world. He pursued a job in law enforcement as a state trooper, but was declined due to his massive size. Apparently, so yeah, when you're six foot, nine inches and 300 pounds, that's too big to be a state trooper. Oh, gosh. Well, that's why he was declined for the job geez. because of his size. That's ridiculous. He did, however, manage to win over a bunch of cops working in the area, sometimes sharing drinks and stories with them at the bar called The Jury Room. Hmm. They nicknamed him Big Ed and Big Eddie. Um, he also okay. ended up <laughs> Big Ed, Big Eddie. Yeah. So he ended up landing a job working for the Department of Transportation. It was somewhere around this time that Ed was in a motorcycle accident that he was awarded a settlement for in the amount of $15,000. <laughs> he used that money to buy himself his own car, which was a Ford Galaxy. He also used that money to buy himself knives, one of which he nicknamed the General, hmm. which I'm just like, okay. Yeah, that's super lame and weird. Yeah, <laughs> your it knife, is. Your knife has a name. The General, cool. <laughs> Yeah. It was during this time that he also noticed a lot of young women hitchhiking. Oh. So I know that today hitchhiking doesn't really happen much at all. But in the early 1970s in the Santa Cruz area, it was very normal. Yeah. College students and workers and people of all kinds would opt to hitchhike rather than owning a car or paying for a bus ticket or a taxi. Mm -hmm. So upon noticing this, Ed decided that he'd start offering rides to pretty women who were hitchhiking. It's believed that he had offered and given rides to over a hundred women without any issues. He said that he'd use the opportunity to kind of like practice talking to women since he was so extremely inexperienced on that front. Because hmm. if you really think about it, from the ages of 15 to 21, he was at Atascadero. Right. He wasn't dating, obviously. Right. And considering the cultural changes that happened during the time that he was in there on top of being a little bit socially awkward. So truly, he had no clue how to relate to women and how to talk to them and all of that. His only experiences with women were with his siblings, his grandma, who he murdered, and his mother, who he had a deeply unhealthy and twisted relationship with. For a time, the hitchhiking thing was kind of helpful for him in a weird way. Hmm. He'd even gone on a date with a woman. The oh, relationship no. didn't work out, though, because Ed felt so clueless on his date and he kind of like blew it. 
And like, that's how he would explain it. He, yeah, it was kind of funny. He's like, I didn't know what to do. Like she said yes to going on a date with me. So I like took her to a John Wayne movie (laughs) and she was not interested. She was really nice and she was really pretty and she let me down easy. But like, I didn't know what I was doing. Right. So (laughs) I feel like that kind of highlights that. Yeah. Eventually, however, the urges to kill and the fantasies of sexual violence would increase, which he called these urges little zapples, which is so stupid. It's kind of like the general. It's just weird nicknames. Yeah. I was about to say that's why. Why would you name things dumb? Like that's. I'm just like, what are what? These little zapples. Yeah. Uh, Okay. I'm like, what are you trying to accomplish with that? Like, are you trying to like make it cute or funny or like. Are you trying to minimize it? Are you trying, what are you trying to do? It's like a pet. Yeah. The it's general weird. little zapples. It's very weird. Making them. Yeah. I'm going to just let Ed describe this time in his own words. In an interview, he said, quote, and I'm going a little bit farther each time. It's a daring kind of thing. At first, there wasn't a gun. I'm driving along. We go to a vulnerable place, but there aren't people watching where I could act out. And I say, no, I can't. And then a gun is in the car, hidden, and this craving, this awful, raging, eating feeling inside. I could feel it consuming my insides, this fantastic passion. It was overwhelming me. It was like drugs. It was like alcohol. A little isn't enough. At first it is, and as you adjust to that psychologically and physically, you take more and more and more. Hmm. It's the same process. So it finally came down to the thing of, do I dare bring this gun out already? Realizing that if the gun comes out, something has to happen. Hmm. It was going to happen. I was playing a dangerous game with a loaded gun, end quote. Wow. So at first he, when he was picking up women, he had no weapon in the car. Then he'd start bringing along along his gun. Mm -hmm. And then... He, but it would be hidden. Then he'd have the gun almost in sight of his potential victims. He would fantasize about killing the women he was offering rides to, and the fantasies would not only become more frequent, but also more twisted and violent. Even though he described the women that he picked up as being very sweet and nice young ladies. Hmm. Yeah, it's very strange. They had done nothing to deserve him to think of them in such an awful way, but yeah. he did. In one of Ed's most infamous quotes, he said, quote, one side of me says, wow, what an attractive chick. I'd like to talk to her, date her. The other side of me says, I wonder how her head would look on a stick, end quote. Oh, wow. That just like circles back to the cat thing. I know. That's what I was thinking. Literally just treating women like animals in his, in his mind. Mm-hmm. Like disgusting. Yeah, it's so bad. So let's talk about Ed's first crimes following his release from Atascadero. Content warning. Pretty much the entirety of the remainder of this show is going to be very upsetting. There will be graphic descriptions of extremely vile sexual violence, defilement of corpses, graphic descriptions of violent murder, and Ed's disturbing thoughts on the matter. These things are very upsetting. And if this is something you don't want to hear, then we are so happy to have you back next week. Yeah. On Sunday, May 7th, 1972, Ed was driving in his car along University Avenue in Berkeley when he noticed tons and tons of hitchhikers. After so much time spent giving rides, he sort of ended up having a type that he preferred to pick up. Coeds, which is just another term for female students. Yeah. Like the history of like how that word got implemented is like a little bit sexist, but that's how it landed. Sure, sure. <laughs> so just throwing that out there. So he would only offer rides to young, pretty women. 
So he ended up picking up two young girls, 18-year-old Fresno State students Marianne Pesky and Anita Luchessa. The two girls needed a ride to Stanford University about an hour away. So Marianne was super beautiful, like bright blue eyes, super cute. She was very cultured and had spent time traveling around the world with her family, even living in Europe for some time, which is neat. Wow. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, she was one of five children, and she grew up in a super wealthy neighborhood between Los Angeles and Santa Barbara, and she had been neighbors with celebrities. Wow. She had gone to school in her younger years all over, including in Germany and in Switzerland. She was a great student, and she'd won medals on her high school debate team. She was really smart. Hmm. She loved photography and wanted to learn and improve in that skill. She also loved skiing, and she had dreams of trying out for the Olympics. She and Anita would actually ski together in the Sierra Mountains whenever it would get a good snow out there. So Anita has been described as, quote, wholesome and sparkling, like a model for the Pepsi Generations ad. So unlike Mary, Anita had never really ventured too far from home, but she always had a thirst for adventure. She came from a farming family and had many fun memories of her childhood there. Her family was nervous about her going off to college, but felt pretty confident that Fresno State was a pretty secure campus. Plus, I'm pretty sure her brother also attended school there. Mm, okay. She yeah. was also a fabulous student and very well-loved by her peers. I saw that in high school, she was what's called a yell leader, which is oh. a way cooler name for cheerleaders. Yes, that's way cooler. I prefer that. <laughs> Me too. She was also involved in several clubs, from German club to science club, and was continuing the task of building a future for herself. So on that day, Marianne and Anita hopped into Ed's car. He had initially planned on raping them and leaving them in a secluded area. But from his time spent at a Tascadero, it was common for violent sex offenders to say stuff like, if you rape someone, you have to kill them so you don't leave any witnesses. Which, like, even reading that out loud makes me so sick to my stomach. Yeah. It's so crass and it's oh. so, it's so, like, ugh, flippant and gross. Yes. hate it. But with that in mind, Ed changed his plans. The first little stretch of the trip, Ed talked with the girls and he kind of made them feel at ease. Yeah. He then drove to a wooded area, which sent red flags flying for both girls who both began to panic. Ed told them to calm down and he promised to let them go if they complied with his demands. He separated the girls, forcing Anita into the trunk of the car. He then handcuffed Marianne in the back seat, apologizing to her when he accidentally touched her breast in the struggle. Oh, geez. Like, he was embarrassed that he <sighs> bumped her breast. Dude. But he had all this other stuff going on in his mind. Freaking dork. I know. Like It makes me so mad. I don't mean that in, like, a funny way. I mean that in, like, that is, like, the dorkiest. That should be the least of your concerns y- yes. in this moment. So, content warning. I'm going to describe murder. Sure. Okay. So he then put a bag over Marianne's head to suffocate her, and he wrapped a bathrobe around her neck. But the belt from the robe snapped, and at the same time, Marianne had actually chewed a hole that was, like, on the bag that was over her head. Oh, my gosh. So she was, like, fighting hard. Wow. So he began stabbing her. Oh. She fought so hard for her life, but he stabbed her over and over on her back, her side, and her stomach. He debated stabbing her in the heart, but decided against it because he considered it too embarrassing to stab a young woman in the breast. Dude. So he pushed her head back and slit her throat. And that is ultimately what killed her. So poor, poor Marianne. Yeah. What a terrifying and miserable last few minutes of your life. It's just terrible. 
So after he was sure that she was dead, Ed decided that he also needed to kill Anita, confident that she'd no doubt heard the struggle happening inside the car and he couldn't leave a witness. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was his mindset. So when he opened the trunk, he saw Anita terrified. He was covered in Marianne's blood, which I'm sure was even more scary for Anita. Yeah. She asked him what was going on with Marianne, to which Ed replied by saying that he'd broken her nose because she'd gotten smart with him and that she better go check on her. As Anita was moving to climb out of the trunk, Ed began stabbing at her. But strangely, the knife blade didn't penetrate through her coveralls that she was wearing. Just like Marianne, Anita fought back. Ed began wildly stabbing at her, even stabbing himself in the hand during the scuffle. Oh, wow. He stabbed Anita multiple times, landing several devastating blows on her arms and chest so deeply that Ed recalled seeing bone in her arms during the attack. He then began to strangle her. Eventually, Anita slowed down, arms swinging in the air, fighting off an invisible attacker as Ed had backed off in order to watch her final moments of struggle before she passed away from her injuries. Oh, my gosh. Just, like, staggering. After both girls were dead, he loaded both of their bodies into the trunk of the car and began driving home. On his way home, he got pulled over by police for a broken taillight. Oh, my gosh. With two deceased bodies in his trunk after just violently murdering them both. Covered in blood? I mean, he must have been. I don't know. I am clueless how it could have possibly played out this way, but the officer seemed to not notice Ed himself or the car covered in blood. So without taking any action against Big Ed, he was sent on his merry way. All the while, there's two bodies in the backseat, or in the trunk, excuse me. So he took the bodies to his apartment. This next bit is very upsetting. So there's a content warning. I'm going to talk about defilement of corpses. It is repulsive, and I am so sorry. Oh, my gosh. He then sexually assaulted both of the bodies. He posed them in explicit positions and took photos of them and then dismembered their bodies, decapitating them as well. He placed the various body parts in plastic bags and dumped them. He claimed to have put their heads in a ravine, which they would end up discovering Marianne's head and a portion of her torso, as well as some scattered body parts of various victims. But from what I could find, full bodies of his victims were never able to be recovered. Oh. Yeah. Whatever demented part of Ed's psyche that was fed when he caved into his murderous urges, whatever it was, it was satiated for the moment. He Mm. began giving women rides again, without incident, until September of that year. On September 14, 1972, 15-year-old Aiko Koo stood near a bus stop on University Avenue looking for a ride to her dance class in San Francisco. So I've seen it said that she was worried that her bus that she was waiting for was taking longer than usual, and she was afraid of missing class. Uh And I've also seen that she'd actually missed her bus to dance class. But either way, she needed a ride to San Francisco for her dance. Eiko Ku was described as being wise and gifted beyond her years. She was an insanely talented dancer. She did classical ballet, as well as various forms of traditional Korean dance. Her mother was a single mother who worked at the university library and often went without things for herself, using every cent she could to help her daughter work towards her dreams. She was lovely and soft-spoken and shy, according to her mother. So when Ed pulled up and offered her a ride to dance class, Aiko didn't hesitate to hop in the car with him, trusting that this man was just as friendly as he'd appeared to be. He made some weird turns, which Aiko eventually caught on to, so she started begging him to let her go and not to hurt her. 
He then pulled out a 357 and poked her in the side with it, which sent her into a terrified panic. He calmed her down by first putting the gun back under his seat, saying that he wasn't going to hurt her. He said that he was intending to kill himself, and he wanted someone to talk to before he did it, and he wanted somebody there with him. So when he pulled up into a secluded area of woods, Aiko complied in letting Ed tie her up and gag her, forcing her into the back seat. She's just this little sweet, little kind girl. And it's this, this one really gets me. It's very sad. So at this point, he had actually gotten out of the car so that he could walk around and into the back seat. And he accidentally locked his keys, his gun, and Aiko in the car. This next part makes my stomach turn. Aiko was such a sweet soul, and Ed was such a filthy manipulator that he actually convinced her to let him back into the vehicle. Oh my gosh. He began to strangle Aiko, who quickly passed out after fighting for a minute against this giant man who was attacking her. Right. When he realized she was still alive, he pulled her out of the vehicle and he raped her. At this point, she woke up and began to struggle. He tried to suffocate her by holding her nose and mouth shut. And when this didn't work, he removed her scarf and used it to strangle her, ultimately causing Aiko's death. He proceeded to sexually assault her body immediately after he killed her. He put her body in his trunk when he realized, hey, I'm kind of thirsty. So he stopped at a bar and had a few drinks with her body in the trunk. Oh. He then stopped at his mother's house with her body still in the trunk because he wanted to, quote, test himself, end quote. What? I'm so... Oh, my gosh. Oh, there's just not even words. Not even words to describe how I feel about all of this. So he drove her home and sexually assaulted her body again before dismembering her. Dude, what a... Gross. Gross and, like... So careless. Yes. Like... I I just cannot imagine regarding another human so lowly that you would do that. I I just can't. Any of it, honestly. So he began going through her bag, trying to figure out more about her. He was shocked and horrified when he realized that this was not a co-ed. He said that she didn't belong in the same category of, quote, rich and haughty, end quote, California girls that he intended to victimize. There was a nobility to her, and he later learned that she had actual nobility in her ancestry. Wow. Yeah. She was only 15. I would just like to remind yes. you. Yeah. 15 years old. He disposed of her remains as he did with his first two victims, but kept her head and hands because he believed they were too easily identifiable. He placed her head in a bag and took it to his car. Before disposing of her remains, he made a quick stop at his court mandated appointments with two of his psychiatrists because he was still technically on a sort of like probation. At one of these appointments, the report said that as of that date, he was no longer considered a danger to himself or others by both of his psychiatrists, who, after much convincing from Ed, went on to recommend that his juvenile record should be either sealed or cleared, effectively erasing the murders of his grandparents from his record. Wow. Yep. Oh, my gosh. I would just like to remind you, he still had Aiko's head in a bag in his trunk during these appointments. He was that much of a manipulator. He could charm his way into making anyone believe anything, and I do not get it. It is so shocking. Yeah. So at this point, police are seeing these missing persons reports of these young college women, and they're starting to believe that there's a connection between them. 
Interestingly, Ed Kemper was not the only serial killer operating in the area at the time. One of the other ones, Herbert Mullen, who would eventually be in prison with Ed, Hmm. uh, he was active at the time as well. So there's a sort of panic buzzing around the Santa Cruz area. It was obvious that there was a serial killer or serial killers on the loose. And so police did their best to inform the public and offer them resources to help keep them safe. Yeah. All sorts of services from establishing a rape line for people to call if they've been assaulted, carpools, longer bus routes, etc. On the topic of the rape line, on top of Ed's crimes and the other murders happening, there was a protest taking place at the county jail that was led by women who believed that none of the 24 active cases involving rape or intent to commit rape were being taken seriously enough, which I thought was like really awesome that they were doing something about it. I'd never heard that before Hmm. that like the women were trying to do something about what was going on. They're making a really strong push to something needs to change change. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Ed would also enjoy listening to officers discuss the serial killer known to the public as either the co-ed butcher or the co-ed killer at the jury room while he would enjoy drinks. Well, of course he would enjoy it. He loved, loved hearing them talk about his crimes. He would also refuse to kill any young women who had brought up the co-ed killer to him in conversation, which I found to be very odd. Like Mm. if they brought up the co-ed killer, they were safe. He immediately was like, nope, can't kill him. That's yeah. Interesting. It's like, it's like because they have information about it, it helps to spread his legend. Mm -hmm. So he'd rather let them keep doing that. Mm -hmm. I don't know, man, this dude's like. It's very confusing to me. Well, and I'm going to, I'm going to be super judgmental here for a second. Okay. But go for like, it. what kind of a total loser do mm-hmm. you have to be to react to, I understand that he had rejection that went really deep into his past and history, mm-hmm. but to react to not even rejection from these women. In fact, they trusted him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but he's reacting to. I'm assuming some kind of a perceived rejection Mm -hmm. because they're too hot for him or they're too this or that for him, whatever that he would respond like that. Like you have to be some kind of an incel kind of loser to jump. And I'm like totally being judgmental about that whole thing. And I'm (laughs) an added judgy layer. I'm unashamed of that because I think that's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Um, If you just can't, find somebody to be with, then maybe you shouldn't be with somebody. Maybe you need and to work you on yourself. To, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, Jeez. this guy, that's, that's him. He, he was, uh, I don't know if he's still alive or anything, but like, like just a complete loser in so many ways. And the only thing that's really notable about him up to this point, isn't the fact that he committed crimes and egregious, egregious murders. It's the fact that, uh, Honestly, is the fact that he was so uh, aware that mm-hmm. these things were bad and still did them. He did them anyways. Yes. When he intentionally put himself in scenarios that he knew would cause the fantasies to like escalate. And he like half the time he would get in the car being like, am I going to kill someone? Yeah. Am I going to do it? And to be sure and clear, him having that ability to do that just honestly like brings his loser level down even further. Like Mm -hmm. just like, like the world is better off without you. 
Mm. And that's pretty severe. And that's severe coming from me. I would never say that to anybody in person, uh, except for maybe this guy, because yeah. it's pretty significant that this is a problem mm-hmm. that, that, and, and, and that's what he is in this scenario. I and mean, he's an extreme like, sociopath Yeah, and it's completely unchecked yeah. really. Cause I feel like if he would have stayed, if he would have stayed at a Tascadero longer and he would have actually been open to the process of being fully analyzed accurately mm-hmm. and then treated based on their findings we probably wouldn't have this follow-up to the story. Right. right. He would not have gone right. on to become a serial killer. He would have still killed his two grandparents, which is awful and tragic, but it would not have escalated the way that it did. Right. Well, he could have re- been rehabilitated. For sure. And that's, 100%. He, he, instead of doing the brave thing and taking a step towards rehabilitation. He, he was did, a coward. He did the cowardly thing, which is I'm going to hide all this and just do what I want. Mm-hmm. And... That's maybe, maybe that's me wearing judgy pants, but, uh, yeah, this is a messed up human that, Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't, doesn't really, hasn't really earned any, uh, nuance from me. Right. That's what it is. That is what it is. So jumping back in, at least there were warnings to the public at this point coming from police. The university also followed suit in attempting to inform students. They issued a statement in the form of a bulletin to students saying, quote, when possible, girls especially, stay in dorms after midnight with doors locked. If you must be out at night, walk in pairs. Don't hitch a ride, please. If you feel you must hitch a ride, do it with a friend, not alone. Try to choose cars with university parking decals, end quote. Hmm. The terrible thing about the last part of this statement was that guess who had a university decal? Oh, gosh. Egg did. He'd convinced his mother to get him one at some point. Because remember, she works there. She works at UC Santa Cruz. So Ed also had recently moved back in with his mother onto the university campus. Jeez. He was living in an apartment up until this point. That I'm assuming, I'm assuming his money just ran out from his settlement. Right. That's my best guess. Neighbors had recalled hearing Ed and Clarnell fighting at all hours of the night. It's like once they were both home from whatever they were doing, they'd get to talking and catching up, and it would always escalate into a screaming match 100% of the time. Man. They would always just like start off like normal conversation, and then uh-huh. it would just blow up. He would, someone would say something passive-aggressive or mm-hmm. seemingly passive-aggressive or perceived as passive-aggressive, and it just snaps somebody. And mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like... Yeah. One person starts screaming, so the next person has to scream louder is yeah. really what it feels like. On January 8th, 1973, 18-year-old Cabrillo college student Cynthia or Cindy Shaw was hitching a ride to get to class. Cindy was a super dedicated and independent student. When her mother got remarried, she and her new husband and younger sister Candy relocated. So Cindy took it upon herself to sign herself up for college. She was 17. Wow. She had dreams of either pursuing a degree in teaching or in law enforcement. Since she was only 17 at the time of her enrollment as a freshman, the school required her to live with a family, so she moved in with a friend and her family. Eventually, she landed a live-in nanny job, which she kind of split with another friend of hers. Hmm. On this particular night, Ed had actually picked up two or three other hitchhiking women but decided against killing them because there were too many people who'd seen them get into the car with him. Hmm. People are on high alert. 
Totally. And he's still picking up people in the same general vicinity. Right. And people are like, you know, everybody's on edge about it. Right. Which is interesting. So before picking up Cindy, he'd picked up a 22 caliber pistol. After picking her up, he drove her to a secluded area and forced her into the trunk. Mm. He drove around some more before opening the trunk and shooting Cindy in the head. He brought her body back to the home he now lived in with his mom and left her body in his closet. The next morning, he sexually assaulted her body before dismembering it in his mother's bathtub. He also removed the bullet from her skull in order to prevent it, like, eventually being found and considered evidence if her remains were ever found. Jeez. So he thought that through. It's very methodical in that way. He took her clothing to the laundromat near his old apartment and put the clothes in a dryer. He set it on the highest setting and then set it to run for a long period of time, hoping that the clothes would burn. When he came back to check on the clothing the next day, they were gone. Oh. So when he went to dispose of her dismembered remains, he took everything besides her head and scattered it all over the area. This is repulsive and warrants an extra content warning. I'm about to describe an extremely repulsive act of sexual assault of a corpse, so skip ahead if you don't want to hear that. So he held onto Cindy's head and had sex with it repeatedly over the course of many days. Oh, dude. Quickly after he disposed of the other remains belonging to Cindy, on January 24th, 1973, Ed would learn that officers had discovered portions of her remains ranging from certain bones to her legs and portions of her skin, and they determined that they did belong to Cindy. But Ed still had her head, and so he panicked, and he buried it in his mother's garden. But he did so with her head facing his mother's window because of the way that she loved young girls looking up to her. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yes. So, so disgusting. I feel like even though all of his crimes are absolutely heinous and unfathomable, that it was around this time that the escalation and the twistedness started becoming like really obvious. Yeah. Like all of it was bad, but we're seeing it starting to spiral and get worse. Yeah. Well, and it now it has something specifically to do with his mom, too, Mm -hmm. which I think speaks volumes. I feel like this whole time, these young women are surrogates of his mom. Yeah. Really? Yeah. His next two victims would quickly follow. On February 5th, 1973, so very shortly after portions of Cindy's remains were discovered, two more girls would be picked up and murdered by Ed Kemper. Mm. One of them, Rosalind Thorpe, who I couldn't find an exact age for, but most sources I used said that she was 23 at this time. So Rosalind was super smart and was finishing her studies in linguistics and psychology at UC Santa Cruz. She shared an apartment with four of her friends downtown, and she would regularly bike around in the area. On February 5th, she'd left her apartment after she'd eaten dinner so that she could attend a lecture on campus. Her roommates assumed that she'd taken a bus in order to do this because it was raining that day. Hmm. So when Ed picked her up, he started doing his usual thing when he noticed another girl looking for a ride. This was 21-year-old Alice Liu. Alice was the daughter of an aerospace engineer and was finishing up her senior year at UC Santa Cruz. I unfortunately could not find much information about Alice, but from what I could find, it's safe to say that she and her roommate, who I believe they were both Taiwanese, 
um, had grown Mm. up together in Los Angeles, and they'd been the best of friends for years and years. She was very obviously super bright and a hardworking student who was just living life and trying to pursue her dreams. So when Alice looked in the car and saw Rosalind, she was put at ease about hitching a ride to her late class after studying at the library. Rosalind encouraged her to join in, kind of like the more the merrier kind of thing. Yeah. So Ed began driving, and within mere minutes of both girls entering the car, he pulled out his gun and shot them both. Since he actually shot both of the girls on campus, he laid them in the back seat and covered them with a blanket. Ed tells this part of the story in two ways. So I'm just going to pick one and roll with it. Sure. When Ed rolled up to the security guard who needed to grant him the exit off of campus grounds, he told the guard that the girls were both drunk and passed out and he was just trying to get them home safely. He brought them home and did his usual disgusting ritual with their bodies, disposing of their parts in ravines, in the ocean, and in the woods. Speculation flew around the Santa Cruz area. Was all of this the work of Herbert Mullen? Was this a different serial killer? Who was abducting these girls? Who was he going to do this to next? Within a very short period of time, Ed would complete his final two murders, beginning first with his mother. Content warning. Everything I've said so far has been awful. This is the worst. If you've never heard this story, this is the worst. It is everything I've talked about so far to the nth degree. Oh, wow. So if you don't want to hear any more gruesome murders and the events thereafter, please, please come back next week. On April 20th, 1973, Ed was laying in bed when he heard his mother come home from a night of drinking with some friends. Some time passed when he decided to enter her room. She was laying in bed reading a book. She looked up at him and said, quote, I suppose you're going to want to stay up all night and talk now, end quote, which I suppose is code for are we going to get into a huge fight again tonight right now? Right. So Ed told her no. Good night. He waited for her to fall asleep and then he went back to her room where he bludgeoned her to death with a claw hammer and then slit her throat. He first decapitated her. And that's when the defilement hit an all time level of terrible. No. After he decapitated his mother, he sexually assaulted her head. He then put it on a shelf where he would go through waves of screaming at it, followed by using it as a dartboard before eventually smashing it. He then cut out her larynx and her tongue, which he put down the garbage disposal. Wow. He put the remainder of her body in a closet in the home that he shared with her and then went out for a drink. Unbelievable. When he returned home, he called his mother's longtime best friend, 59-year-old Sally Hallett, and invited her over to come have dinner and watch a movie with him in Clarnell. When Sally arrived, he promptly strangled her and put her body in the closet as well. He did some tidying up so that none of the neighbors would notice a disturbance, and then he left a note on the front door reading, quote, Approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer any more at the hands of this horrible, quote, murderous butcher. It was quick asleep the way i wanted it not sloppy and incomplete gents just a lack of time i got things to do end quote that's what the note said ed then stole sally's car and began just kind of like mindlessly driving he'd taken a bunch of caffeine pills to keep himself awake to avoid needing to stop the car because he believed that he was the target of an active manhunt He'd driven over 1,000 miles to Pueblo, Colorado, and sifted through radio stations to see if he could find any updates about his murder spree, assuming the cops had to be on to him by now. 
when he heard nothing pertaining to his case, he looked around, found a payphone, and called the police back in his hometown. He confessed to murdering his mother and Sally, but whoever was taking the calls, for some weird reason, they didn't believe this was an actual murder confession. So they just kind of like ended the call. He called again a few hours later and requested to speak with one of the officers that he knew personally. He once again confessed to murdering his mother and Sally Hallett. Police drove out to Pueblo and arrested Ed, who quickly confessed to the murders of six college students in the Santa Cruz area. Later, he was asked why he confessed, and this is what he said, quote, The original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real emotional purpose. It was a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing, and at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it all off, end quote. Which, Aww. if we're taking in everything we've talked about so far, what this whole story is actually about is Ed and Clarnell's dysfunction. Yeah. The young girls that he killed, the girls that his mother loved, the girls that his mother said would never love a weirdo like him, he killed them either as like an act of revenge on his mom or as a projection of her. And so once he finally killed her, what's the point? Right. I don't, that's like top tier. What else do we have? What else do I really have to accomplish here? That's really how I see the mm. whole thing. I've from the beginning, I've, I'm like, yeah, he hates his mom and he's projecting. Right. Well, it, it does make me wonder what, what really was the purpose of killing his mom's best friend too. Like no idea that was just like, like I, I, I very pointless, just seems very like senseless. It. Yeah. Like it was it to see if maybe now there, it means nothing anymore. And then when maybe it, when it really did mean nothing, he was like, Oh, okay. I guess I'm done. Like, but I'll tell you what, um, I don't have to go and kill somebody to find out if right. it means nothing. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I keep coming back to just the absolute like moronic nature of all this. Like you don't have to do these things to know that that's a bad idea. Right. So I don't know. I'm just kind of like, I'm more than annoyed. Yeah. (laughs) Like this is a deeply upsetting story. Yes. But I, I, I feel like there's also a degree of annoyance of like, you, you don't have to, you, you don't have to do all this. It makes me so out. mad. You're, you're just an idiot is yeah. what this comes down to. You're just a loser. You you just have problems like the rest of us. And you dealt with it in a way that was unreasonable. Right. And, it and refused help me, when you were given the opportunity to get help. Yeah, exactly. So it just makes me like mad like, mad. And yeah, the undertone of annoyance is because it's just, it's not, it's, it's, it's not always easy to accept those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and help is not always accessible, but in his case, he was living in the best possible scenario from the age of 15 to 21. He could have been there longer. Right. Well, and, um, I'm not, I don't want to make this sound like I'm projecting this onto anybody with a behavioral health issue or a mental health issue. Of course. Um, we all have stuff. I have stuff. Everybody has stuff, but there comes a point where you don't need to be told, Hey, you shouldn't kill somebody in order to not kill somebody right. like you've already been told that that's not going to help you, that that's not good, that there's morality <laughs> persists regardless of how you, how your, your, your brain is working and wired. Mm-hmm. 
And, uh, yeah. So I'm just kind of like, I don't want to make it sound like I'm picking on everybody with mental health problems. Right. But I am picking on this guy mm-hmm. because he has an incredibly high IQ, every opportunity to get stuff figured out and, uh, just threw it all away because he is not really as intelligent as his IQ says he is. Mm-hmm. On May 7th, 1973, Edmund E. Kemper III was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder, to which he initially pled not guilty due to reason of insanity. He tried all kinds of things to convince everyone that he was insane, including falsely confessing to cannibalizing the bodies and also attempting suicide two times while awaiting trial. After being deemed fit to stand trial, on October 23, 1973, his trial began. After a few weeks, on November 8, 1973, a jury of six men and six women declared Ed to be sane and guilty of all eight counts of first-degree murder. Ed asked the jury, yeah, he did. Ed asked the jury if he could be sentenced to, quote, death by torture at this time. There was a moratorium on the death sentence at this time in California, and so Ed was sentenced to seven years to life on all counts with those terms to be served concurrently. He was sent to California Medical Facility in Vacaville, California. So this is wild, but two of the more notable people that were also serving out their sentences were Herbert Mullen, like I said, mm-hmm. and Charles Manson Oh, at the same place. Wow, all at the same time. Yeah. Huh. Which I learned that Ed really disliked Herbert because he would sing loudly while other inmates were trying to watch TV. <laughs> so he would throw water on him to make him be quiet. He said they would also give him peanuts if he was a good boy. And then eventually Herbert would ask Ed for permission to sing, which Ed referred to as behavior modification treatment. <laughs> so it seems like another nod to a Tascadero there. Yeah. In prison, Ed was once again considered to be a model prisoner, excelling in handmaking ceramic cups and eventually scheduling appointments for other inmates with their psychiatrists. Hmm. He's also recorded thousands of hours worth of audiobooks, which he believes is a sign of good hope that maybe he can offer something good to the world after everything he's done. He continued doing this until he suffered a stroke in 2015. So in 1979, Ed was eligible for parole. Mm -hmm. When he went before the parole board, he informed them that he did not feel like he was ready to be released. Okay. Between 1979 and 2017, Ed maintained 14 separate times at parole hearings that he was not ready to be released, which is very wild to me. Hmm. He also participated in so many interviews over the years. His interviews and confession tapes are nightmarish from beginning to end, which I don't think I've actually heard like official confession tapes. I don't know if those have ever been released, but listening to him describe everything in the interviews is like enough for me. Sure. Some speculate that Ed just straight up enjoyed the notoriety of being labeled as a high profile serial killer. While according to Ed, he did the interviews in hopes that someone who was like him, someone with an urge to kill would see his interviews and be convinced not to act on their urges. Hmm. All in all, what else really is there to say about this story? This is at its core, in my opinion, a story of legacy. It's like, what legacy are you choosing to leave for the people around you? For E.E. and Clarnell, they left a legacy of dysfunction and anger that left deep imprints on their son. Yeah, I'm not saying that they are like 
responsible for Ed's actions, but the dysfunction in the home, the inconsistencies, the lack of affection, the singling out of Ed by his mother, really just the lack of insight into forming healthy emotional bonds with their children on top of ignoring serious red flag behaviors in Ed as a child. All of those things were contributing factors to the legacy that Ed Kemper will leave behind when he dies. At the end of the day, he's the one who chose to live out his darkest fantasies at the expense of 10 lives. He made the decisions that he made. He chose to offer rides to vulnerable young women, knowing full well what the end result would be. Yeah. He cheated every system that he could, and he used his intellect and cunning as a weapon. And he snuffed out the lives of his grandparents, mother, friend, and six innocent young girls who had everything at their fingertips. My most sincere hope with stories like these is that we as consumers of stories like this choose to be moved more by the lives that were lost more by the women who had their lives stolen from them than we are by the man who took their lives. They were taken in a horrific way, but they should be remembered as the bright, talented people that they were in life. For this episode, I spent an unbearable amount of time watching interviews with Ed that he'd given from prison. I also watched a bunch of documentaries across many different platforms and channels that you guys can go look up. Mindhunter on Netflix to The Co-Ed Killer, The Mind of a Monster on Prime Video. There are so many you can find on this story for free on YouTube as well. I also got a lot of my information from articles found on edmundkemperstories.com and from the book called The Coed Killer, a study of murders, mutilation, and matricide of Edmund Kemper III by Margaret Cheney. And that is what I have for you this week. Wow. Lots of just like disgust comes through my Mm -hmm. mind. Um, And... My, my heart deeply hopes that what he said about um, wanting to redirect other people who maybe have similar urges to him. I hope that's true. I hope he meant that. I hope he meant that. And I hope that that's legit and that he, he has a, like just an unbearable amount of shame and guilt that he would want other people to steer away from for Mm -hmm. their life. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm shocked at the fact that he said, I'm I'm not rehabilitated. Don't send me back out. Yeah. Don't let me go through parole. In um, fairness, though, just uh-huh. as a side note on that, I don't think he would have been paroled anyways. For sure. For I sure. don't think so. Part of me thinks that he knew that. Yeah. Like he knows that all of these people will n- never trust that he's safe. Yeah. So it's like a control thing to say, Mm -hmm. I'm not ready. See, look, I'm a hero. Right. Like it's a weird, all Mm. of this also on the, on the same vein of legacy, all of this really is about Ed really thinking he is somehow above everybody else in the entire world. Yeah. Really? Hmm. It's like, what, what makes you feel like you have the ability to do this to other people? What makes you feel so important that you can go and do this, that you deserve to get to go do this? Yeah. It's very baffling. And it's the same thing. It's like, I just don't trust anything he says. Right. And when you watch these interviews, you want to feel bad for him. Mm. You want to feel something for him. And the minute that you start, he'll two sentences later say something where you're like, he is completely full of it. Yeah. And those interviews were from the seventies and eighties. Sure. You know, I I don't know. It's hard to know. Yeah. With him. He's elderly now, you know. Yeah. 
But yeah, this is an awful story. Mm. It makes me angry, too, that I had to dig so hard to find information about the girls. Oh, man. I had to work very hard. And like the book that I had used, Margaret, the book by Margaret Cheney, that one had some information that was helpful. But like I had to find old articles and things that like, you know, when Eiko Ku's mother was looking for her, stuff that she'd shared about her to find anything. And it's like we can we really as a society, of course, this is this is there's a level of interest in a story like this that makes logical sense, even though it's like sure. it stinks sure. that these stories happen and you learn about it and you can't unlearn it kind of thing. But I, I would love to see and I'm starting to see it on some platforms, a shift away from putting somebody like Ed Kemper on a pedestal yeah, and people being like, I really want to know what Marianne Pesky was up to. Like, I yeah. really would love to know how her family is. You know, yeah. what, what did her siblings end up doing after she had passed away? Like all of that kind of stuff. That's, that's the real story. That is actually at the heart of me finally deciding to tell one of these bigger stories. And I will wait probably another 30 episodes before sure. I do it again. Sure. Cause this was terrible Yeah, to research. Yeah. I lost a lot of sleep over this and I knew this story. Yeah. But yeah. Mm. Well, I think that is a good place for us to wrap it up. <laughs> and we could just talk opinions all night. We on could this. talk opinions we all night. We probably will. I, we probably will. It's true. Um, but for the the this episode of the podcast here, thank you to everybody who listened to as much of this as you could stomach. Um, mm. Definitely unusual, unsettling, unsavory across the board. Serial killers are are uh, a whole different monster than I think we've ever really like considered as a, as a species of humanity. Mm. And, um, we're only just now tapping into a lot of that. And, uh, yeah, I do I don't not think, intend to do it again soon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I hope, I hope we don't hear about serial killers ever again. And yet I know that we will, unfortunately, but, mm. um, with that, uh, please, if you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platform and leave a five-star review or whatever the best review is that you uh, can put there. Um, it helps other people find this podcast that are interested in similar content. And also, please uh, follow us on social media if you would. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok at this one is a doozy, and on Facebook, this one's a doozy podcast. And you can also email us, this one is a doozy at gmail.com with your recommendations, feedback, and uh, personal stories that you might have as well with uh, whatever you've got going on. Paranormal experiences. I'm still waiting for a Bigfoot. I, I hope I hear a Bigfoot. Now I really need a Bigfoot, honestly, after this one. Literally. I need a Bigfoot story. I'm like, let's put out a bonus episode next week and talk about creepy Christmas gnomes. That'd be great. <laughs> let's just do that. That'd be great. <laughs> I hope we get tons of requests for creepy, Chris, creepy Christmas gnomes now. Thank you, Katie, for pointing out the creepy Christmas gnomes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There's the, the bonus shout out. Well, with that, everybody, thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week for another doozy. Bye.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.